Amen. Amen. Hey, this morning we're going to be in the tail end of Matthew 19, but spending the majority of our time in Matthew chapter 20, verses 1 through 28, if you want to begin to make your way there. The tail end of Matthew 19, really focusing on Matthew chapter 20, verses 1 through 28. You know, during, um, during our, our lockdown and our time away, was given a, a lot of time uh, to think and reflect, and then in, in conversations with the staff and in conversation with the elders, begin to really reflect on our identity and, and what is our responsibility to not only impart these things, communicate these things, but also in some sense to, to, to measure. Now, not measure in the sense of of just, you know, what well, we want everybody to be at this level, and if they're not at this level, we're going to, you know, hands on the table and hit them with a ruler or whatever. But if, if we have a responsibility to steward our leadership of this church, and, and these are the things that we think are profitable, and, and these are the building blocks in some sense of what we would say occur and show themselves in a mature follower of Jesus Christ, that they're growing in their faith, that they're serving in their giftedness, and that they're going forth with the gospel, then there needs to be some kind of follow-up. There needs to be some kind of inspection. There needs to be some kind of, of accountability to this, if we're going to serve people well, and if they're going to find value in these things. And so one of the things that's being put together is, is a, a, a tracking sheet is really kind of the best way to think of it, and seeing, man, how are we doing as a people growing on our own? How are we doing spending time in the Word? How are we doing serving? In what various ways are we serving? And when we begin to look at all the various ways our members are serving, and Jesse had done a, a bunch of work to, to see uh, you know, all the various ministries that people are serving, we were overwhelmed at all the different ways and all the different avenues and all the different ministries our members are already serving. Now, if we, if we look at that, I think there's this temptation to have this sense of self-satisfaction, thinking, yes, look at all the awesome stuff they're doing. But what becomes so incredibly difficult in this is how do we measure the heart? We can spend all of our time and all of our talents and all of our finances serving and never really penetrate to the level of where is my heart in service? Now, one of the things that I think is so incredibly illuminating and piercing when we come to this section of Scripture is that he gives us an indication that our heart validates or invalidates our acts of service. Our heart either validates or invalidates our acts of service. Now, we would say when it comes to service in the kingdom, that it absolutely takes all of us. But equally true within this, when it comes to service in the kingdom, it not only takes all of us, but it takes all of each of us for service in the kingdom. Now, about Matthew chapter 19, right there in the middle of it, Jesus has a self-assured young man come up to him. And he asks the question, teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And so they have this back and forth. And Jesus tells him that he needs to keep the commandments, and he begins to run through them. Don't commit adultery, uh, don't steal, don't tell lies, and all these things. And the guy's just getting this sense of, yes, yes, I've got this, I have this, I'll have it, you know, kind of moment. And then Jesus just wrecks him. The guy says, what else must I do? And Jesus says, 
Sell all that you have and give all your possessions to the poor. And when the man hears this, all the stuff he'd done, all the rules he kept, all the righteous living that he seemed to be living was empty and void. Because what he loved above all else was his money. And his feelings about money and possessions completely invalidated his previous acts of piety. Now listen, the disciples hear this and they begin to have some considerable debate amongst them. They said, listen, if, if this guy can't make it in and all the things he's done, who can make it in? Who can inherit eternal life? And so Peter wants to set the record straight. And so he says in verse 27, see Jesus, we've left everything and followed you. What will we have? Peter doesn't want there to be any misgivings or mis- misunderstandings. That guy wasn't willing to give up stuff. We got nothing. We laid it all on the line. We want to follow you. And so Jesus says, truly I say to you, in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will sit on the 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for my name's sake, will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. But here's the key. Here's the key. But many who are first will be last. And last first. Would you join with me in prayer? Praying God's blessing and focus upon this time we have together. God, you tell us in your word that our hearts are wicked and deceitful above all else. And so I know in that it is hard to know our hearts even in service. It's so much easier to look at the stuff we've done and the things we've said no to and say, okay, this was right and that was wrong. But to measure our hearts. So God, I pray that your spirit would pierce our hearts this morning. That you would remove from our minds a sense of self-satisfaction in our service. God, that you would call us to deeper relationship with you. And as said in that panel, from that relationship with you, from modeling ourselves after the service of your son, that we would find ourselves longing to serve with every fiber of our being. God, would you put to death the quest in us to be first, to be best, to be most magnificent? Would you create a fire within us to be okay being overlooked, to being forgotten, to having service that's not extraordinary, but is the mundane, the ordinary, the regular representation of what it looks like for a follower in Jesus Christ to be faithful before you. God, would you lead us to be servants who have hearts that reflect Jesus? And we submit these things to you in your son's name and ask that you would bless this time we have for the careful study of your word. Amen. Amen. So Jesus wants the disciples to understand this principle that is decidedly different than the principles we recognize in the world. This, this first in this world will be last in the next, and the last in this world will be first in the next. And that's not only important for the disciples, it's so incredibly important for us because we recognize that in many of our vocations, that those who work hardest get promoted fastest. 
And those who get promoted get more money. And if you get more money, you get more stuff. And if you have more stuff, you have more friends that want to play with your stuff because they have not worked hard and they've not done well. And they think your stuff is better than their stuff because your stuff isn't stuff they've had to pay for. You see how this is going. This is why I keep praying my neighbors will get swimming pools so I can play in their stuff and not have it to have to be my stuff. But we have this understanding that we're trained over the course of our lives that the better we do, the more recognition we receive. And the more recognition we receive, the more recognition we want to receive. So it's countercultural for them and for us. When Jesus steps in, he says the first will be last and the last will be first. So Jesus gives to the disciples and to us a parable about this uh, owner of a vineyard. Look how it begins in chapter 20 and verse 1. It says, For the kingdom of heaven is like the master of a house who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. And so he uh, is likely in a time of harvest, and he goes out early in the morning, he goes out at 6 in the morning, and he says, listen, I don't have enough ordinarily employed people. I need to find some additional laborers to come in. So he goes into the city center and to this place where laborers congregate. And walking up to them, he sees them early in the morning gathered there, and he says, listen, I will pay you the going rate, which happens to be a denarius a day. I'm going to pay you the standard rate. And this is what this is. And they say, okay, and they agree to it. So he sends them into his vineyard. And so these guys are going to work for 12 hours. For 12 hours for an agreed upon rate of a denarius a day. And so he sends them into his vineyard. Look at verse 3. Then going in about the third hour, he saw others standing idle in the marketplace. And to them he said, you go into the vineyard too, and whatever is, everybody say, right. Whatever is right, I will give to you. And so the man has gone out at six, and he secured the number of laborers that he presumed it would take for him to get the work done. And it's rolling about 8.30, and he thinks, oh, man i got to get some more work done. I need more laborers. And so he goes out in the field, and he walks into the marketplace, and the text tells us that he saw some standing idle. Now, this doesn't mean that these guys weren't there at 6, that they're like, oh, man, it's 8.30. i got to get to the marketplace. (sighs) So I can be idle again. That's not what it says. All it means is that these guys hadn't been secured for work yet. They were standing, perhaps they'd worked at home, and here they were, waiting, hoping someone would come along to offer them a job. And so he comes up to them and he says, hey friend, I see you there, and I need more laborers. Would you consider going to work in my vineyard? And the friend says, he says, yes. He says, you should have asked me what I'd pay you first. But he said. <laughs> He says, I'm going to pay you what is right. Now, notice it's important for us at this point that he doesn't say, I'm going to give you this amount. He says, I'm going to give you the right amount. I'm going to be just in my dealing with you. So he went out at 6. He hired the initial group. He goes out at 9. He hires a second group. He goes out at 12. He hires a third group. And he is just bringing people in. He says, listen, I need, I need you, and I need you, and I'm going to continue to pay you what is fair and the right amount. And then verse 5, it says, so they went. And going out again about the sixth hour and the ninth hour, he did the same in verse 6. And about the eleventh hour, man, it is 5 o'clock. There's an hour left to get work done. But he looks around and he says, there still needs to be more laborers. I still need to add more people. There's still more harvest to bring in. So he goes out at 5 o'clock and he went out and he found others standing. And he said to them, listen to this question, 
Why do you stand here idle all day? He's not asking them a question about their laziness. He's asking them instead a question about why hasn't anyone hired you? Now look at the instructive thing he says to them. All day. These guys didn't show up at 4.30 and think, man, I hope somebody hires us. These guys didn't show up at 5 and meet him in the middle of the city and say, oh, we just happened to see you here. These guys have been there all stinking day. So you can imagine the emotional toll upon them. You can imagine the anxiety welling up within them when they're thinking, how am I going to provide for my family? How are we going to have food to eat tonight? How am I going to pay my bills? How am I going to pay my rent? How am I going to secure this? How am I going to do that? All day they saw him come out. They saw other owners come out and say, I'll take you, you, and you. Load up. I'll take you, you, and you. Load up. And the whole time they're thinking, take me, take me, take me. Nobody wants it. Nobody has any desire for these workers. So he comes up to them. He says, why have you been here all day, standing idle? So they say to him, no one has hired us. It's not that they're lazy. They were out there and ready to serve. They were out there and ready to work. They have been unable to work. Because no one wanted them. Every other employer that went out into the market square looked at these guys and for whatever reason said, you're not going to make it in my vineyard. You're not going to make it in my harvest. You're not going to make it in my presses. You're not going to make it smashing rocks. This guy went out and he sees in them a worth that is beyond their ability. So he says, you too go into the vineyard. So now the day for them is is decidedly short. They all have an hour to work, right? And at the end of the day, the owner of the vineyard calls his manager. He says, hey, listen, it's the end of the day. It's time to settle up with the day laborers we hired, but this is how I want you to do this. I want you to do it in a backwards kind of way. I want you to bring in those we hired last, and I want you to pay them first, and then we'll work our way down from there. And I think this is the best way to handle this. So the manager says, okay, I'll, I'll, I'll do this. And so verse 9 says, and when he, those he had hired about the 11th hour came, each of them received, shockingly, a denarius. Now if you look back up at verse 2, those he hired at 6 in the morning, he told them, I will hire you, and they agreed upon the rate of a denarius for an entire 12-hour period of work. And then those he hired at 9, 12 And three, he said, I will pay you what is right or what is just. But to those he hired at five, he gave no such indication. He gave no such promise. They wanted to work. He needed laborers. So he said, go and work. So when they stood there in this place, ready to receive some semblance of a wage, They were blown away at his generosity. They were bowled over at the extravagance that he lavished upon them, men who only worked an hour. Now you probably get the sense this isn't going to sit well with the rest of the work crew. Verse 10 says, now when those hired first came, they thought they would receive more. 
Now, why would they think they'd receive more? Because they worked a lot longer. They worked so much longer than these jokers who showed up at 5 o'clock, came dragging in and said, hey, y'all, where are the shovels? And he said, oh, the shovels are being used. Use your hands. They're like, all right, well, I got, you know, I got digging hands. They're so incredibly frustrated. They're incredibly indignant. They walk up and they think, wow, this guy promises a denarius, but we've been here 12 times longer than these jokers. 12 times one is, is it's going to be a lot more. And somebody in the back says, 12. He says, fair enough. It's going to be a lot more. 12, this guy says, let's see. But how much do they receive? Well, the text tells us plainly. They receive a denarius. Now, upon receiving it, they're so incredibly frustrated. It says they grumbled at the master of the house, saying, These last worked only an hour, and you made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the day in the scorching heat. Do you recognize what they're saying there? Their primary frustration in that moment isn't solely how much they've been paid, but they're saying that what their pay represents, you've made them equal to us. We worked more, we worked harder, and you're saying they're worth just as much as we are. You made them equal to us. The master must have seen this coming. He must have anticipated this response. And he replies to one of them, friend, I'm doing you no wrong. And he reminds them of their agreement. Did you not agree to work for a denarius a day? Now their words must have stuck in their throat in that moment. Certainly they had agreed to work for this. And so he helps them to understand how he rates economy. He says, take what belongs to you and go. I chose to give to this last worker as I gave to you. Am I not allowed to do with what belongs to me, or do you begrudge my generosity? So will the last be first and the first last. Now, if you're reading this and, and you're thinking, Jesus is offering some really odd management techniques, and I, I think I may just try these at the next billing cycle for my employees, you're going to find yourself not having very many of them. This parable isn't told to update modern economic theory. It's not told to create happy, jovial feelings in the workplace where we say, hey, listen, I know today's your first day, but we're just going to give you the whole year's salary. Aren't you so excited? I mean, this would be the kind of place I like to work, but, but, but that's not what Jesus is doing. This isn't our takeaway from this. What he wants us to see is that in terms of the kingdom of heaven, equality in terms of what we are owed and what is given to us goes out the window. The one who is last will be first. The one who is first will be last. And the disciples, you can tell they're a lot like us. It just takes a moment or two for the, for the teaching to kind of set into their minds for them to understand all the various things. So while they're cogitating, while they're thinking about these things, Jesus turns and he begins to tell them something that seems completely to be an aside. Verse 17 says, as Jesus was going up to Jerusalem, he took the 12 disciples aside and he said this to them. See, we are going up to Jerusalem. 
and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death. And deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified. And he will be raised on the third day. Coming out of this understanding and this teaching about the first being last and the last being first, Jesus imparts to the disciples as he's traveling towards his death a story not just that he will die, not just that he's aware of his death, but Jesus is intimately acquainted and familiar with exactly how he'll die. Let that sink in for a moment. We say often in church, Jesus recognized he was going to die, he saw his death, and he went there anyway. But Jesus spells out for the disciples, now here for the third time in the book of Matthew, incredibly exactly what it will be like for him. He's going to be betrayed. He's going to be mocked. He's going to be beaten. He's going to be crucified. Knowing all this, Sharing it with his closest followers, Jesus intends to serve anyone. Because he recognizes the kingdom for the, the, the kingdom principle of service is that the last will be first, and that the first will be last. Now this principle seems to be apparently incredibly lost on two of the disciples at least. Verse 20 picks up, it says, Then the mother of the sons of Zebedee came up to Jesus with her sons, and kneeling before him, she asked for something. So you've got the sons of Zebedee, and their mom comes up to Jesus, and she falls down on the ground before him, and he says, You have a question for me? And she says, Yes, I have a question for you. Do you see these two strapping boys behind me? And Jesus looks back, and these, they kind of sheepishly grin at Jesus. Listen to mom. Listen to mom. This, this is mom's idea. Listen to mom. And she said, do you see these handsome, strapping, faithful, awesome guys behind me? And they're like, love you, Mom. Who incidentally are your followers? And you'll remember, Jesus, you said not too long ago that those who follow you of this group will judge the 12 tribes of Israel. So those things being true, Jesus. These awesome boys behind me, fellas, how's about this? You got one right here, you got one right here. I'm talking left hand, right hand, sons of Zebedee ruling in heaven. What say you, Jesus? Jesus responds, not to her, but he recognizes this was clearly an idea born in their hearts. So he looks past her, looks to them, and he asks, or he says this rather, you do not know what you are asking. You've missed the lesson. You're failing to recognize that the last will be first and the first will be last. He said, are you able to drink the cup that is before me? They say we are. So he tells them. He says, you will drink the cup before me. And this is a cup of suffering. But to sit at my right hand and at my left is not mine to grant, but is for those for whom it has been prepared by my Father. Jesus, still living in full subordination to the Father, tells them plainly, 
I can't give to you the throne of honor at my left and at my right. If suffering is what you want, suffering is what you will receive. So the ten around them hear it and they're indignant at the two brothers. But Jesus called to them and said, listen to this, it's so incredibly instructive. You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. He says, you know how it is in the marketplace? You know how it is in the cities you grew up in? That the rulers of the Gentiles, that the rulers over us, that the rulers over all this people, they are so incredibly proud of their positions of honor. They're so incredibly proud of how great they are that they exercise authority over them. He says, this has been common to your experience. This is what we've gone through, but I'm telling you this, the kingdom of heaven is not this way. And there's this great temptation in our hearts to rise up and to be great. To rise up and to not just be seen by Jesus as great. This idea that says, when I arrive in glory, I want him to testify and say, well done, my good and faithful servant. For so many of us, the temptation is that that's not enough. I want to be great now. I want to be praised now. I want to to have people seek out my advice now. I want to be sought as someone who knows, someone who's an influencer, someone who's at the top, and someone that other people just stand back and say, let me bask in your glory because you are great. The disciples felt that. Three years Jesus had been leading them, but they still felt this in their human hearts. And he offers this word of correction in verse 26. He says, it shall not be so among you, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant. Whoever would be first among you must be your slave. And then you'll remember the example that John and the rest of the panel gave. Speaking of Jesus says, even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. And all of a sudden, it makes sense why he includes in the midst of this parable and this rebuke, the discussion of his, his upcoming passion that he would die. Now listen, when we evaluate our service, click down through and think, I'm serving uh, in the school here. I'm serving in my neighborhood here. I'm serving in the church there. I'm serving internationally, all these various contexts and all these various things. But determining our hearts and our heart in the middle of service is so much more difficult. And in some sense, it takes the work of good brothers and sisters alongside of us to say, I see you talking a lot about what you do. But what I don't see is you willing to serve and to be overlooked. Listen, 1 Corinthians 12 gives us a picture that service absolutely requires every member of this body. There is no place in the local church for an absence of service in our hearts and in our lives. 1 Corinthians 12 says that all of us have been gifted in various ways for the express purpose of service. But we recognize that service does not merely require all of us, but it requires all 
of each of us. So when we begin to evaluate our hearts, and when we begin to just tick down through the various aspects of our lives, and we consider, man, what role does money play in my life? And what does how I use and utilize money for the benefit of others say about money's hold on my heart? I can tell you we have a number of terrifically generous people in this church. One of the things that has blown me away during this time of incredible economic turmoil and and financial difficulties for a, a great number of our members is how in particular of a couple of the folks I'm aware of, elderly members of our congregation, barely scraping by, dead set and insistent upon giving financially. Sacrificially giving so that other people can be impacted. Sacrificially giving so it's warm in here and not cold in here this morning. Then we got other people that they can make it rain when it comes to money. And some of them give a lot. Some of them don't give any. Now, most of us are just kind of in the middle. We're just kind of average people. And in a lot of our hearts, we're waiting for a point, financially, economically, where we feel secure enough to be generous. Let me ruin this for you. You're never going to get there. This line will keep moving, it'll keep shifting, you're going to keep having air conditioners go out or brakes go bad or whatever it is. You're going to need a new set of tires, you're going to need something that's going to continue to move the line of generosity. You're never going to get there, the line will keep shifting. The place of generosity starts in your heart. We have far too many people who give zero dollars a year. And now you're, you're generous thought may be perhaps they're giving in cash. I can show you each week what our cash receipts are. They're not giving in cash. They're not giving in gold bullion. They're not giving in Bitcoin. They're not giving anything. You know, but for some of us, the issue is not money. The issue is time. And the reason you're so incredibly generous with money is because you don't want to give of your time. You value your time above all else. Your family sees it, how much time you give to your work. Those around you see it. You're unwilling to surrender your time for the service in the kingdom of God. What does how you use your time say about your heart before God? What about our talents, those things we're good at, those things God has gifted you, made you passionate about, and helped you to serve well in? What does how you're using those things say about your heart? I've spoken to a number of people, and, and perhaps this has been your tendency over the course of your life. I want to use my talent where people can see it. I want to use my talent where people can observe it, and if, if it's not a place where people can see it, if it's not a place where people can readily observe it, it's not somewhere you can be out front and shining. You pack up and you move somewhere else. My talent has to be on display. One of my favorite preachers in America today is a man named Alistair Begg. And 
and they have this phenomenal internship program where they invite young pastors to come and, and to learn from, from them and, and to learn their model and from him and his wisdom for decades of ministry. But I was really blown away. He was speaking a couple of years ago to a conference I attended, and someone asked him about what are you looking for in interns? What are you looking for in people who would work here? And he said that we give to all of them a responsibility for cleaning toilets. And we can tell by what their reaction is in that moment if they're going to be a good fit here or not. He says, because if you're not willing to clean the toilets in the house of God, then you are not fit for service in the house of God because you're not ready to handle attention. Man, my longing, my prayer for us as a people, my prayer for me and for my kids and for my family and for this church family is that we would be willing to serve whether anybody ever thanks us. Whether you ever get a thank you card in the mail or a certificate of you did great, thank you so much, or an attaboy, or we bring you on stage and let you shine and serve in front of people. That our hearts would be so beholden to a God who sent his son to serve. That the cry of my heart and the desire and the intensity of my life leaning forward will be a cry and a demand, let me be last. Let me be unnoticed. Let me be overlooked. Let me find a brother or sister whose talents far surpass my own and let me pour my life into them so that they might be truly great for his kingdom. And my prayer for us is that we would serve passionately, faithfully, anonymously, continuously. Would you join with me as we pray? God, we recognize that you sent your son to seek and to save the lost. That in Jesus' service, he served us before he ever called us to serve. And God, some of us, for whatever reason, we've gotten these things out of order. We think we need to serve to be approved, and in being approved, we can be saved. God, you saved us, and in your saving of us, have called us to service. So God, I pray for those in this room and in this hearing who have yet to submit themselves to your son, Jesus, that they would allow themselves to be served by Jesus, who offered his life as a ransom for many. God, I pray for us in this room that some of us are, we are burdened. We are overcome. We are so incredibly busy with all the affairs of life. God, that you would lead us to an act of service out of a great love for you. Be it praying for our brothers and sisters around us, calling them all the various avenues and aspects of service that you set before us, God, pray that we would be found faithful, that we would be found willing, and that your spirit would prompt us to serve you for your renown and not for our own. God, we submit these things to you in Christ's name. Amen. Amen.